This is We Are Netflix. Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. At Netflix, we've always been in the business of bringing entertainment directly to people. We started with DVDs in the mail, then added streaming, which was way more convenient, and allowed people to watch directly on any device. Then we started making original global content from creators all over the world delivered directly to people. And last year, Netflix announced that we're changing the game again. I'm Lyle Troxell, and today on We Are Netflix, how and why Netflix got into gaming. There are three billion people that play games, so it is a thriving entertainment medium. And it's technology, it's software. And so Netflix is, uh, is really unique in that it's a company that's perfectly balanced between technology and entertainment. And that's what games are all about. So it's a very natural next step for the company to take. That's Mike Verdue. He's worked in the video game industry for over 30 years. And now he's head of games at Netflix. We spoke in April. In the first six months of having games on service and, and making that announcement public and all that, what kind of things have we learned? The first thing we've learned is how to bring games uh, to our members. Like there is a neat little row of games in your Netflix mobile app, but taking a game which is software and not at all analogous to a film or a TV show um, and surfacing it to our members and then uh, enabling to, them to actually play uh, took some real work. So right now, as a Netflix uh, member, how do you play a game on the service? Well, if you uh, have your smartphone handy, then uh, fire up the Netflix app and scroll down and you'll see a row of uh, game icons. And when you tap one of those icons, you'll get a description of the game. And then if you want to play, you just tap in the appropriate place and uh, we'll take you to the app store. You'll download the game and, you, and you're on your way. Okay, so we've had these mobile games out on Netflix service for a while. Is it working? What games are people playing of, of the ones we've released? So yes, the good news is that people uh, are downloading games, they're playing them, they're enjoying them. And uh, you know, we have a, we're starting to get a sense of what uh, people's tastes are, taste the, our members' taste. And it's really surprising. The top two games on the service are Asphalt Extreme, and Nittens. Asphalt Extreme is a crazy over-the-top racing game with these outlandish off-road vehicles. And I think a lot of people go, oh yeah, that, that sounds like what I would expect in a game. But then there's Nittens, which is like cats and match three gameplay, where you're lining up little balls of yarn to essentially solve little puzzles. You earn yarn and you style outfits for your cats and then you compare your stylishly outfitted cats with those from other players. It's Kitty Couture, and you know how off-road racing and Kitty Couture could be the top two games is is magical and fun, and it just shows you that uh, that we're serving different member tastes, and and that's great because that's really what we're setting out to do here. Have you made an outfit for your uh, virtual cat? Oh, of course, of course. Um, I think the game is awesome. It allows uh, a form of self-expression and marries it to this very casual uh, gameplay. And then it has this social component, so it's it, it's great. And yes, of course, I have knitted outfits for my cat. <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to try Nittens. I've already tried Asphalt Extreme, and you're right. It's a it's a full, beautiful, 3D rendered, uh, active racing game that's lovely and fun to play. So, how do we approach the creative development of games? Um, so the 
games that come onto the service, uh, some are licensed. So there are existing games that, that we feel would be of benefit to members and, and we work with the developers to adapt them for our service. We're also working with external developers to create new games. And then finally, we are building an internal studio organization, both organically and through acquisition, that will create kind of what you might think of as the equivalent of Netflix originals. So those are the, the three paths for, for a game to get to members. Let's talk about the more original space. We haven't launched any of the games yet that have been developed in-house, if you will. Do you perceive that we will do game development differently than other companies that are doing uh, games? So the lack of pressure to monetize and the availability of great IP um, will shape the games that we build internally. But I do want to set expectations. Games take a long time to build, and we're very early in the game rollout here. Yeah. So you know, I wouldn't expect to uh, see our big internally developed games on the service for you know a couple of years at least. Right. That makes sense. What's your vision right now for what we look like in you know five years out? after you've had this time to develop and launch games? What do, we, what do we look like? So I very much hope that members uh, will find games uh, that they'll enjoy um, in, in a variety of uh, genres and categories based on beloved IP uh, or these fresh new original uh, IPs that, uh, that might have sort of transmedia potential going the other way. But if we have a robust catalog of games uh, and members can find something that they enjoy, then... You know, my hope is that the personalization and recommendation system that underpins the selection of movies and shows can be adapted for, for games. Because game discovery is one of the biggest challenges in the game industry. If you go to a, a typical app store, there, you know, there are millions of games and it's hard to, to know what you might like in that, in that sea of content. One thing that we can do at Netflix is uh, is figure out how to, to to connect you the games that you'll enjoy, and we think that will that will build trust and and just make life uh, a whole lot better for for members. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Is there a particular title that you're excited to explore in the game context? Well, oddly, the answer to that is uh, I'm excited about what our members are excited about. Um, and what are our members excited about? Well, just look at the sort of the top shows um, in the on the website where you can sort of see them ranked by hours spent. There are so many wonderful stories and, and, and worlds that have been created that have passionate followings. And I think that there are um, games that can be can be married to those that, that will vary in the you know the type and the category. You know, it's based on on, uh, on on what kind of show or what kind of movie um, it is that the, the member fell in love with in the first place. Okay, well, what's your favorite show on the service right now? What have you been watching? Um, well, the uh, I got to say, there are um, a number of Stranger Things games that are already on the service um, and some out in the world on, on app stores. But I feel like we haven't made the definitive Stranger Things game yet. So uh, definitely look out for that. Yeah. Um, and boy, I would love to play an Ozark game, but I don't think that, that we're going to make one of those just yet. <laughs> but you like, the, you like the show, so it'd be kind of cool to explore it in the game world. Yeah. I do, yes. I, I guess we, we're not really going to announce stuff before we kind of launch that, right? So it's a little hard to talk about what we're developing. But it's nice to know that you're thinking about our shows and thinking about the world of that show and how to turn it into a game. I love that idea. 
Mike, how are we making sure that our culture stays persistent where we're treating people fairly and we're giving them freedom and responsibility? Um, Because I know that the game world in general has a bit of this, you know, deadline based work your butt off, do everything you can to get the game out and not necessarily focused on people's health and well-being, what they're developing. So I think the game industry um, has to confront some of the issues uh, that have been serious teething pains uh, over the last couple decades and crunch the sort of burnout culture that that um, has been a feature of traditional game development is certainly one problem. Uh, there is also a problem with representation and uh, diversity. These are all areas that I think those of us who work in the industry are super aware of. I am pleased that we're making progress. The industry in 2022 looks a lot different than the industry did 20 years ago. And it's a huge industry now. It's a a diverse, broad industry across the world that employs uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And you see diverse teams creating wonderful, accessible, diverse products and working in very, very healthy ways. And so we're, we're, you know, we're, we're getting there, but we do need to acknowledge the problems where they are. Um, as for Netflix, you know, when we hire people into our teams organically or, or we acquire a company, it's really important that we align with people in terms of the, just the fundamental values and the mission that, that, that they're on and that we're on. Because if you share values and you share a mission, then you've got that bedrock, that foundation where you can build a, a healthy team, uh, making a, um, accessible products that serve the world. So we're very, very careful about that. It starts right up front. And, you know, we found that if there is that alignment, then you don't see a lot of the toxicity and, and, and the issues. So um, so be careful on, on, the, on the front end. Um, and it applies for people too. Like people need to self-select into the values and the mission that we're on. Uh, so, uh, but it is incredibly important to me and to my team uh, to make sure that, uh, that we're true to the Netflix values and that we have teams that are diverse and, uh, and working on products for the entire world and not just like a subset of the world. One of the strategies we've been doing is actually finding game companies we want to work with and acquiring them. Um, wh- what's that looking like? That How many have we acquired at the time of this recording? So there are three um, announced acquisitions. The first one was uh, Night School Studios, who we adore because they're trying to reinvent storytelling in games. Uh, then uh, we announced uh, the acquisition of Next Games and Helsinki, who have been around for a while and develop just this incredible competence in running games uh, as, as a live service, like in this dance with their, with their players, which is awesome. And then finally, uh, Boss Fight Entertainment, uh, which has an, an incredible pedigree in, uh, in cross-platform games and has made some wonderful games like, like Dungeon Boss. So what all of these studios have in common is that they're uh, comprised of game makers that have worked together for a while through multiple game development cycles. You know, I tend to think of game teams as, as almost like rock bands. Like you, you don't just put a bunch of individuals together and expect magic to happen, no matter how talented any of these folks might be in their individual disciplines. Like you, you need time for these teams to figure out how to work together and figure out where 
their strengths and weaknesses are, figure out where the magic can get made by by working together. And that means that uh, acquisition is a really viable way to build out game development teams because you're essentially able to acquire these teams that have this muscle memory and cohesion and history of working with each other over multiple games. It's it's really cool. Mike, of these... Um... Of the acquisitions we've done where they already are a rock star team, they're already making great games, we're in a, we've hired them on, what's the experience like for them? You know, I think the best thing to do would be to talk to Sean Crankle. I think he wouldn't be shy about sharing his experience since joining Netflix. Okay, if you'd start by just giving your name and your title. Sure. I'm Sean Crankle. I am the studio director at Night School. I also was the founder of Night School. Um, and what that means is that, uh, you know, I, I essentially started the studio eight years ago and oversee everything from production to creative to strategy. Can you tell me the story of like stepping into the Netflix space, how that happened for you? Yeah, we've been around since about 2014 and our first game came out in 2016. Uh, it's called Oxenfree and it is um, really, I think, kind of our biggest uh, mission statement for what we've done for the last few years, which is to let people interact with stories in new ways. And so in the case of Oxenfree, that was a game about, um, at a design level, giving players the ability to uh, have agency in where the story goes by allowing the player to say pretty much whatever they want, whenever they want. I think that, you know, like when, when I started the studio, at that time, a lot of games weren't actually doing that. If games did give you choice or moments of choice, they were sometimes kind of few and far between, or they were just the connective tissue between the real quote unquote gameplay, right? But like for us, we said, how do we make talking and interacting with the story the actual toy? How do you make that the thing that you do, like the player verb? And so um, we made a coming of age supernatural horror game based on that. Um, and at that time we were very small. So my role, uh, I was the creative director. I was the studio founder um, with my cousin, Adam Hines, who is um, still with the studio and is the studio's lead writer. And the two of us oversaw a very small team uh, over the course of about a year and a half to make that game. It fortunately found an audience, uh, you know, found actually a really big audience that continues to to grow and people have been excited about it. And so ever since then, we've been making other original IP games, but have not really returned to the Oxenfree universe. We did a game called After Party that is about two friends who die and go to hell and find out that uh, if you can outdrink Satan, he will grant you re-entry to Earth. So it's like this kind of crazy pub crawl through hell. We did a game based on the TV show Mr. Robot. And all these games have kind of dipped into that like branching narrative that I that I talked about before. So fast forward to the middle of last year, and I was talking to Netflix specifically about just bringing some of our games to the platform in the future. And as we started discussing this stuff, it was just a really healthy Venn diagram overlap of um, intentions and thoughts about how we think the future of gaming should go and how story can be in games and be pushed on in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, a few months into these discussions, uh, there was uh, some serious interest from Netflix in a you know strategic relationship that would last longer. And so we kind of fast tracked this this relationship to becoming a part of Netflix. Did you think when you were first starting Oxenfree and start, first starting your company, uh, Night School did, Studio, did you think that you would be acquired? 
That's a great question because I I personally did not. Um, but when you're out raising money to get a game out the door, um, and when you're you're meeting investors, and the first thing they wonder is what your exit strategy is. You know, I, you know, in my mind, I was like, I just want to keep building these things forever. And so the acquisition and like that that wasn't necessarily the end of the line for me at all. I thought that we would just keep doing this probably independently forever. However, that's a bit naive. And it also, as the industry is evolving and as we're seeing the industry change, you know, pretty dramatically, I think within the last two years, I was sort of in the mode where I was thinking about potential partnerships, but I didn't, I I was going to be very particular about who they would be. So what I mean by that is, you know, we've had interest over the last five years from people, but they just weren't the right company. And I wanted to make sure that here, if we were going to come over here, that my team would still be able to make the best work of their life and it wouldn't change. So, yeah, I guess there was a version of my in my head where an acquisition was going to happen. There was also a version where it just shut down <laughs> or there was a version I did it forever independently. You know, I kind of yeah. you play all of those out in your head the whole time. Well, why did you say yes? I think we, you know, honestly, it was because of those few months of talking to the team here. It wasn't just as simple as somebody knocking on the door and saying, we want to work with you. It actually, and this is where I said, you know, that it happened organically. Like we got to know the the team at Netflix for three months on a different, you know, path towards what was going to be perhaps us licensing some games. And so um, having that relationship and understanding where Netflix was going. And then basically, like I said, being able to look to my team and go, this only lets you keep doing what you do, but better take bigger risks, et cetera, et cetera. It just kind of made everybody happy and made sense. So yeah, it, it, but I think that had this happened more abruptly or had we not even known the folks at Netflix earlier on, I probably would have said no. What's the difference in creating games before and after the merger? We ask ourselves more questions than we used to before. I think we were really insular in our production process before, which which makes good singular creative decisions for our studio. But I also think that now we're like, okay, if this is going to truly be on the world's stage and if we're going to continually be pushing this to be truly global, let's think through that lens all the time. Or let's not limit ourselves with regards to some creative decisions or let's not be too afraid of a specific release date or whatever. So there's lots of little things where we sort of, you know, remind ourselves of the new environment, but it's not really a different creative process, to be honest. It's pretty much the the same. It's more just uh, a bigger safety net. Sean, why don't you describe Oxenfree? Sure. Yeah. Um, Actually, it helped us quite a bit when Stranger Things came out. It came out about six months after Oxenfree because the two share some pretty similar creative DNA um, in that it is a supernatural coming of age story. Um, I think that, you know, the other one that we've talked about internally that's probably more accurate would be Dark. Um, Dark, it, it leans into a lot of the similar types of uh, world building and rules that we do. But ultimately, Oxenfree, yeah, it is a game about uh, a girl. The first game is about a girl named Alex who goes to an island with some friends. It's a decommissioned military island that's sort of a tourist trap now. She goes with her friends out to this island uh, at the end of her high school uh, senior year. And it, what is supposed to be them just going out and partying on the island overnight and ditching the last ferry back turns into... you know, all hell breaking loose because they unwittingly open a portal uh, to another sort of dimension. And there are some ghostly figures that cause a lot of problems. And then, as I mentioned, you know, earlier in the in the chat that the, the whole game allows you to choose where that story goes and how you deal with it and how you create your own 
Alex. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, a fun world to return to. You mentioned, of course, Stranger Things. People most, almost everyone knows what Stranger Things is. Dark is also a, a Netflix uh, original that it comes out of Germany. Uh, I recommend it, especially if you like kind of, well, if you like Stranger Things, you'd probably like Dark as well. Yep. So let's talk about storytelling in games, because I think most of the time people don't think primarily about story in games. They think about gameplay. You know, you, a classic idea is like how Donkey Kong works or how, you know, what kind of the, the classic stand-ups. And then more recently, if you're a game player, if you understand that there's so much richness in storytelling, you might be aware of it. But I think a lot of people don't. Like, why, why are games a good place for storytelling? Story is just such a strong way for, even if you're playing a game that, that doesn't have a, a need for a, a strong narrative, story is still a great way for you to just connect to the characters and the events that um, are taking place in the game. And I think something that, uh, you know, a lot of people assume that I am all about branching story all the time, but I think it's really about what is the experience that you're trying to create and then apply story effectively. So The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2 are a series that are probably the most lauded uh, couple of games in the last 20 years. There's no branchiness, but that's fine because the experience that they're creating is, you know, this brutal, intense, still extremely emotive, um, sweet story that has a very connective director's hand that goes through that whole experience. And so I would, I personally wouldn't want any branchiness in that game. I like that I'm forced to do certain things that make me uncomfortable in it. Or I like that there's moments that um, are, make you sort of, yeah, just do something that you might not want to actually do. And that's an interesting choice, maybe not on the player's part, but on the, the game, uh, the game team's part. And so it's really, to me, more about what is the feeling or the experiential goal that a game team is trying to bring to the table and then applying story or what we call like the, the player verbs. That's the, you know, the actions that the player can do in the game, making those player verbs sync up nicely with with story. Um, there was a game a few years ago that also won you know a ton of awards that was a, a much smaller game called Papers, Please. Um, and that game, it was unique in that it's actually under the hood, it's just kind of like a um, spot the difference game, but you are playing as like a border security character. And there are all these unique, challenging, heartbreaking choices that you're making while you're playing ultimately just kind of a, a simple puzzle game. Um, but that one was such an, an elegant use of a, a puzzle mechanic with storytelling in a way that only that game could have done it. Um, so I think that what we've, what we've seen is that in the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think any game reviewer or the public even really cared that much if the story was that strong. It just felt like a kind of flashy thing maybe in, in the middle. Certainly there's there's exceptions to that. A lot of role-playing games would, you know, cared a lot about story. But now um, if, if you don't have a good through line and if you don't have stuff that people can attach themselves to, the, the public and the press and everybody have really um, advanced, I think. And so storytelling is pretty critical for, for games. Um, what we try to do then is go, can you make story the actual player verb? You know, if, if in another game, the verb is run and gun, or if it's manage resources, or if it's do whatever, for us, it's like talk, <laughs> you know, can can talk be a player verb? Or can pushing and pulling the story in a different direction um, be, be that player verb? Which is why you get all the crazy stuff like, you know, interrupting, like you mentioned earlier, you can do that in our games. And um, you can say nothing if you want, and all the characters need to react to that appropriately. So it's it's a unique challenge, but one I think that has uh, has been a fun one. Will you define player verbs? 
Yes. Uh, so when we say player verbs, it really means um, what are the core actions that the player can do in a game or what is the thing that when you're playing the game, you're doing at all. Uh, the player verbs in Tetris are, you know, rotate the block and place the block. And the whole game is built around that. All the challenges root from that. So that's why the blocks start to fall faster. The block, the music gets more intense, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in a game like Mario, it's it's avoid and jump and, and run, right? Or, you know, I'm probably butchering that a bit. But it's really the stuff that is the promise of how you get to interface with the game. Um, the other thing, actually, that I, I want to mention that informs a lot of this is that I think our team, so far at least, has still always wanted to make sure that there is a strong sort of writer and director hand felt throughout an experience so that a player does get to lose themselves inside of a story. And the way that we still let you feel like you can push the story wherever you want is to make sure that, that we have really strong, like, just thematic resonance at the core. And so the themes have to be there. Like in Oxenfree 1, it is a coming of age story, but we let you come of age however you want. So if a normal movie would mm -hmm. say, okay, the person by the end of it becomes a rock star and leaves the town, and that's the only way that they can do it. Well, in our games, we say that's a, a possible outcome, but also maybe you find fulfillment in changing the town from the inside, or maybe you find fulfillment in pushing back on these systems, or maybe maybe the path that you started in, in the beginning that you were questioning yourself about is totally the right path. And so we want to fulfill all of those, but that the the central core is still about, you know, a, a particular theme. And so that's that's kind of how we put bumpers around it, I guess. It would be to say that for each one of our games, we mm -hmm. want there to be a single theme, but let the story play out in a variety of ways um, to, to fulfill that theme. Sean, earlier you mentioned um, the talent team. Like, it's very different being not have to do everything, not have to wear every hat to get to rely on a whole bunch of people out there looking for great people to work with. How has that affected your approach to uh, creating games? I mean, it's been central to what we've done in from, from day one. Um, but as a smaller team, you know, our first game, only four people were working on it. And as we've grown over time, and now certainly as we've joined Netflix, we've just had the opportunity to be more active and intentional about that inclusivity. So um, I think that, you know, there's two things. One, our characters, like the, the characters in our games have already focused on a diverse set of characters that have their own challenges, um, that have their own backgrounds that make them unique and beautiful and interesting. And so to have characters like that or to tell as broad of stories as we do, we need our team to really be um, as broad a spectrum as of folks as well. And so we've always really tried to to be intentional about that. But now that we have, you know, a, a, a bigger team that's growing, um, it's just been really important to us to make sure that as the team is growing, so does the sort of diversity of background and perspective uh, inside of that. So it's something that I don't think there's like a magic bullet to, okay, now we've reached a perfect uh, equilibrium of what a team makeup is, but it's more to say that uh, Any time that we've brought on new types of folks and from different backgrounds, uh, it has only benefited our games. So it's something that we've, again, like I said, we've been intentional about it before, but now I'm just excited that as the team grows, we can also be even more inclusive and continue to you know push on that. What are you doing to make sure that you keep that? To keep that, uh, that, that culture? So there's a couple of things. There's one thing is that as the team grows, you start to find that some people are more immediately vocal and some are not. And so I think it's important that internally we even kind of codify how to pull out the best in our other colleagues and make sure that a, a voice that might be underrepresented or just quiet in general 
is is brought out. So I think that people are actively trying to um, ensure that that culture persists. Um, the other thing is to ensure that we're quite transparent internally. So the way that our team functions and communicates is that all of our docs and all of our Slack channels internally are all open for everybody to see and comment. And I think that then that mean that allows every team member to have visibility into and a, a voice in, in what we do. But it all really starts with hiring. And, and for us, I just want to make sure that at the hiring phase that we don't jump the gun on any hires and that rather we cast the broadest net possible. And that when I was mentioning earlier that Netflix's talent acquisition team is is second to none, they're they're really finding ways even to go out to specific groups and, and you know, put our job postings out there and reach out to different groups that we wouldn't have otherwise previously because we were so small. We would just kind of post our stuff over on LinkedIn or post it over here. And now it's, you know, we're getting a, a much more targeted approach to ensuring we can bring in a more diverse set of uh, team members. I'm not sure the general public really gets games. I think that people have certain ideas of what games are, and sometimes that don't doesn't align to like the prestigious quality we give to film, for example. What are you hoping, or what do you you know what do you hope for? I'm assuming your love of games. How would you like people to understand them and think about them? I want everybody to just know that they probably are a gamer already and that the term gamer is just such a weird loaded title that people immediately either have an allergic reaction to or self-identify with like like myself. But I think in general, games are provide such a broad spectrum of possibility for how you can interact with them. They can be competitive. They can be narrative. They can be relaxing. They can be, you know, insular. They can be meditative. They can be uh, the biggest challenge that you encounter during the day. Like there's really a flavor for everybody out there. So I think even without getting to the point of games, getting props on the world stage from, you know, the getting great reviews and accolades, I just want people to know that they probably already are a gamer in some regard. If you play a puzzle game on your phone or if you sit down and play Elden Ring for 300 hours, you're either one, you're, you're already kind of a gamer, right? Um, after that, I think it's the, 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 the bigger piece to me that, and this is why I'm excited to be at Netflix, is that because there's so many types of experiences out there, discoverability and finding them is extremely difficult and finding one that matches up with you is extremely difficult unless you're out there reading all these various websites and blogs and following person X on Twitter, you are probably going to have no clue on all the awesome games that you're missing out on because you're just not like immersed in it. So I think um, that that's, that's a, that's a real challenge on all the various storefronts, like, like kind of pairing people up with stuff they'll like. And the fact that Netflix has such a powerful recommendation en engine makes me excited to, to, you know, pair our games up with people who uh, might not have otherwise found them. There's been a theme in this conversation. Again, Mike Verdu. Around introducing people who don't play games to games uh, and and making the assumption that uh, uh, that there's kind of a game experience for everyone and that we believe almost everyone can enjoy this new medium. Um, but I've lived it. I watch several hundred million uh, new gamers, even though they wouldn't describe themselves as gamers, come into uh, interactive entertainment over a period of about five or six years. And it was magical. It, it was mostly women, not, not men, um, of all ages, uh, coming into gaming to play with their friends, to play on their own, on a variety of different canvases from 
the Facebook uh, platform to mobile devices uh, when they first started rolling out um, at scale. And so I, you know, what I see us doing here at Netflix is just is continuing that 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 momentum. A lot of people play games, but you know, I think this is an art form that that will be enjoyed by almost everybody in the same way um, films and and uh, TV shows are. So what surprised me over time is just how true that is and how many people who would never identify as 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 gamers are being brought into um, into the space and playing games that sometimes they wouldn't even identify as games. Uh, like it's very hopeful for me as a, as a creator. I can remember when you know games were on floppy disks that you put in your in your computer and the audience was tiny and you'd be lucky to sell 100,000 copies. You'd think of that as a mega hit. And then, you know, you see games now that have 30, 40 million people playing them a day. And that's cool. We Are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxell. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.